Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. You know, I dealt with some anger, as you see people, or Jody and, and the defense, um, lying about Travis. And, you know, sometimes I would cry, uh, realizing that this isn't a movie, this isn't entertainment, this is, this is my buddy and he's gone. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting very far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And today is the conclusion of our three-part series on Jody Arias. So if you haven't listened to the past two episodes, stop right now, go back and binge those first because this will not make any sense to you until you are caught up. But all right, Billy, what day is it today? You know, I could have picked National Root Canal Appreciation Day, but... I think we all know what I'm going to pick. It's World Cocktail Day. Ooh. That is right. You know, my quarantine hobby is making cocktails. I've become quite the cocktail connoisseur, so I really appreciate this day. Yes. I, too, appreciate cocktails. I've given up coffee and um, swapped them out for cocktails during the day, so <laughs> in quarantine. So I am a huge fan. See, I just go... Coffee, 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 coffee until noon, and then I switch to the cocktail. There's not much of like an an area where I'm not consuming either huge amounts of caffeine or alcohol. But your White Castle uh, Bloody Mary with the White Castle slider on top was pretty amazing. I know. You guys, it was delicious. Everybody needs to try it, and they're the perfect size for a cocktail. I love it. All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In part one of this series, we gave you a never-before-seen glimpse into the relationship between Travis Alexander and his friend-turned-girlfriend-turned-secret-girlfriend, Jody Arias. In part two, we took you through the investigation and the evidence that led to Jody's arrest and the bizarre characteristics of the case that caught the media's attention. 
Now in part three, we're going to take you through the trial that seduced, consumed, and horrified the nation. Jody's trial lasted four months, and she testified for 18 days. We're going to delve into the details that stood out to us, as well as the events that impacted our first-degree connection, Chris Hughes. In this trial, there was a mountain of physical and circumstantial evidence against Jody, and the defense, grasping at straws, pulled out all the stops, which included shocking and fabricated lies told about Travis Alexander, accusations that further destroyed his grieving friends and family. So when we left off, Jody had been taken into custody by the Siskiyou Police Department in Wairika, California. She was then indicted for first-degree murder. Then in early September of 2009, Jody was extradited from California to Maricopa County in Arizona to face her charges. She pleaded not guilty, and with that, the state began to prepare the case against her. Early on, there were whispers that the Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office planned to seek the death penalty against Jody, and that was in fact confirmed late in 2008, which raised the stakes in this already high-profile case even more. And while there was copious evidence, Jody had one thing working in her favor. She was stunning, the camera loved her, and she loved the camera too. Jody was offered media interview after media interview after media interview, and she granted almost every request. In every interview, Jody was dolled up and spoke softly, and she smiled. And honestly, if you had seen these interviews before you knew of the evidence against her, you very well might believe her. She told the Arizona Republic, which is the newspaper in Phoenix, quote, God knows I'm innocent. I know I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with this murder. I would never hurt him. He was my friend. And during that interview, when asked, Jody refused to discuss how she would refute the DNA and photographic evidence against her. Then Jody sat down for an interview with Inside Edition. There, she said, no jury is going to convict me because I am innocent and you could mark my words on that. No jury is going to convict me. But in the same interview, she said publicly for the first time that she was at the house when Travis Alexander was attacked by two intruders. So this is the second and brand new account of events that Jody is introducing. Because remember, initially Jody denied being in Arizona at all, and she said she hadn't seen Travis for months prior to his murder. And now she's not only backpedaling out of that story, but she's saying that Travis had been killed by two intruders, telling no one about it after she escaped with her life and witnessed Travis get murdered. So she doubled down and told the same story in an interview with 48 Hours, saying, quote, I saw two other individuals, a man and a woman, in the bathroom, and they were both coming towards us. I was terrified, and I was scared for my life. I heard a really loud pop. And the next thing I remember, I was lying next to the bathtub and Travis was screaming. At that point, I sort of was just trying to come around and kind of orient myself to what was going on. Jody also said that at one point, the man pointed the gun at her. He pulled the trigger, but nothing happened with the gun. It misfired. So at that point, I grabbed my purse, she said, which was on the floor at that point, And I ran down the stairs and out of there. And I left Travis. I pushed past him, meaning the killer, and his gun. And I just didn't look back. So Jody said she kept driving and never called the police. And when asked why she left the scene and didn't tell anyone, she said, quote, I think there was a naive belief that I could pretend like it didn't really happen. So Travis was murdered on June 4th of 2008, but Jody's trial didn't start until January of 2012. That's essentially three and a half years in which Jody was seducing the media in a variety of ways. 
Here's just an example. Just over two months after she was sent to Arizona to face charges in December of 2008, Jody entered in the jail's American Idol caroling contest, and this was for inmates at the Maricopa County Jail. She sang Oh Holy Night, and she won, beating out 50 other inmates. Oh holy night, the stars are brightly shining, it is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees oh hear the angel voices oh night divine oh night when christ was born oh night divine When Jody won, her prize was a Christmas stocking full of goodies and a turkey dinner for herself and her cellmates. The judges of this competition were Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was a controversial man known as America's Toughest Sheriff. Then the other judges was some guy dressed up as Elvis and then another dude dressed up as Santa. You literally can't make this shit up. Yeah, and if you know anything about Maricopa County, this is par for the course. Sheriff Joe is the guy who made inmates wear pink. He served green bologna so everybody would spend money in the commissary. Lots of, lots of people died under his watch. That's a whole other story. But back to Jody, She's also doing things like selling her artwork. Prior to the trial, Jody sold four pieces, including a drawing of Frank Sinatra for $1,075. She sold art on eBay. Many pieces were drawings of notable people, including a sketch of Grace Kelly. And she continued to sell art after she was convicted. While Jody was behind bars, rumors about her love life in jail were also on the news front and center. And reports that Jody was now dating a woman in jail were circulating. And while the news was churning out clickbait content on Jody Arias, her defense team was at work filing motions. The first was a request asking for Jody to be able to represent herself in her own defense. The judge granted the request as long as her public defender stayed on the case to aid her as advisory counsel. Jody's defense shifted their focus to what evidence they could call on during the trial that could help in Jody's case. So Jody would be represented by public defenders Victoria Washington and Kirk Nurmi. And remember Kirk Nurmi's name because it'll be important later. So one of the first things they did was attempt to enter some letters between Jody and Travis into evidence. And these weren't ordinary letters. These were letters that Jody claimed Travis sent to her prior to his murder that contained explicit material. Now in these letters, Jody claimed that Travis admitted to being a pedophile. So obviously this is shocking. When anyone hears that word, it's shocking, especially because a big part of the public draw into this case was this aspect of Mormonism combined with the sexually explicit nature of Travis and Jody's relationship, as well as the sexual photographic evidence that we all know about. So the world already can't look away. So if you throw accusations of pedophilia, it was like adding fuel onto an already blazing fire. 
And there's one more thing that you need to know about these letters. They explicitly mentioned the son of our first degree, Chris Hughes. So we were subpoenaed to come to this hearing. And the, the big picture was that Nurmi, the lead defense attorney, reached out to us and he basically said, hey, there's this document. Before you come to, to this hearing, there's this document that I want you to see beforehand because I don't want it to blindside you, um, you know, on, on the stand. I don't want you to see it for the first time on the stand. But during the trial, it was like this guy didn't want to do us any favors. I mean, he was he was shrewd and um, and underhanded, in my opinion. And so it was curious that it's like, okay, he's the defense attorney. Why is why the bedside manner? You know, why the compassion? Why is he being so concerned about our feelings? And I don't want you to be blindsided when you take the stand. Now with 2020 hindsight, it was all about manipulation. He wanted to turn us and get us angry at Travis prior to taking the stand so that we would give a favorable um, testimony for the defense as opposed to a one that was favorable for Travis. So that's kind of fast forwarding. And then going back, uh, Sky said, well, just what is the document? Just tell me. And he goes, no, I really want you to see it. She goes, yeah, I don't need to see it. Just tell me what it is so we know. And he said, well, I'm going to email it to you. Nurmi said to Sky, this letter has been verified authentic. So he emails it to her. And if I recall correctly, I was on the road and she called me and said, you got to come home. She's really upset. And what Nermi had sent her was this document. It was a letter. It was a hand. It was a photocopy or a digital copy of a letter allegedly written from Travis to Jody. And it was very disturbing. So the, the core of it was that Travis said in there that he didn't want to go to the Hughes's anymore because, you know, one of my sons was getting to the certain age, which is the age that Travis liked. He's basically admitting to having sexual feelings for children. And so when Sky first read it, of course, she's devastated because Travis had been to our house so much and he was like a, he was like our family. And, um, you know, anybody who understands child exploitation so often, it's, it's a family member or a friend of the family. And so, you know, she was hypersensitive to that and oh my gosh. And, but then she said, literally after just a few minutes of looking at the, this letter, she, her gut, she realizes this is fake. And then we look at the dates and the dates don't match up. You know, she's, she was a year off in her date. She messed, she messed up when she wrote this letter. Um, it was written by, by hand, allegedly by Travis. And so it's so obvious that this was written by Jody. But the question was, you know, how did she, how did she get it in Travis's handwriting? So not too much time went on before we kind of had it figured out, but you still want to know, you know, you still want to verify it. Well, my good friend, Randy was CSI in um, uh, San Bernardino County for 30 plus years and had just retired. 
And I called him and he was good friends with Travis as well. And I said, Randy, I need your best handwriting analyst. I need an expert. I need a guru because I got to find out if there's any validity to this letter that I've got my hands on now. So he gave me the name of a guy that's 30, 40 years, an expert doing uh, handwriting analysis for the government. And the guy, the first thing he said was, where's the original? And I said, nobody has an original. He says, you've been lied to. You know, I, I don't know if he said it's been 100% verified or it's been totally and completely verified. It is authentic. It's been proven. This was written by the hand of Travis Alexander. So Nermi lied to us. He says, if you've been told that this has been verified, 100% authentic, and there is no original, you've been lied to. And here's what we discovered. The, the, the letters were Travis's letters, K-A-B-C-D-E-F-G. Those were all his letters. The handwriting was not his handwriting. And so what has been deduced is that we know that Jody stole his journals. Somehow, some way, Jody scanned his, his letters or someone outside the jail. I don't know the timeline on all, all of this, but somebody scanned the letters from his journals, got an A, got a B, got a C, got a D, and literally created that letter digitally. And that's why there's no um, original. Crazy, right? So clearly, and this is just an observation, Chris has been dragged into this situation in sort of every aspect. The idea that Jody would implicate his son, his family, in these accusations against Travis with this fabricated evidence is really, really wild. And I can imagine pretty traumatizing for Chris. So needless to say, these letters did not make it in the trial. Jody's defense insisted that the letters be admissible. And here's why. The motion stated that the defendant had previously attributed the crime to intruders. But she now argues that all of the letters we moments ago discussed must be admitted to support her domestic violence defense. The defendant argues that the letters are relevant to her claim of self-defense and that she was a victim of previous sexual and physical abuse by Mr. Alexander. When the defense attempted to have these letters included in the trial, we see a foreshadowing of what was to come an attempt to completely drag Travis's good name through the mud with lies about sexual deviance, about pedophilia, and physical and emotional abuse. So to be clear, Jody's new quote-unquote official story was that Travis and Jody were getting steamy and sexy with the camera, but then Travis had become enraged when she dropped it by accident. She was then forced to kill him in self-defense. So once the letters were tossed, Jody decided that she was in over her head. And she decided not to represent herself after all. Probably a good call. Her defense team would move forward with trying to convince the world that Travis was abusing Jody. You know, humans are designed to get mad, right? I mean, that's an emotion that is on the spectrum of okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay to get upset. It's okay to get mad. And so, yeah, I've seen Travis get mad or become upset, but no, he, I've never seen him bring any kind of 
you know, physical pain, even threatening physical pain, threatening to hit somebody, punch somebody, tackle somebody, or in um, in Jody's case, body slam somebody. The, the murder occurred in 2008, and it didn't go to trial until 2013. So they had the balance of 2008, all of 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, and then a part of 2013 to find one man, woman, or child that Travis had, A, either brought some sort of physical harm to or even threatened to bring some sort of physical harm to. And they failed. The defense failed. They couldn't find a person on planet Earth and I just think that's so important because it completely annihilates her story of him roughing her up and throwing her around and, you know, all the claims that she made. This new narrative for how Travis's murder unfolded was already really not good for Jody's case. How could anyone believe a third version of events? Remember, she went from denying she was in Arizona at all to claiming that two intruders were responsible and she was actually there, to claiming she was a victim of domestic violence and had killed Travis in self-defense. And Jody's sister, Angela, came to her defense in a Facebook post. She said, quote, Jody was not under oath when she spoke on TV. And yes, she lied. But it was because she was so in love with that man, she did not want people to know what a monster he really was. She wanted everyone to believe that he was as amazing as they thought he was. My sister is innocent of the crime they are accusing her of. She did kill Travis, but it was not in cold blood. It was not for revenge. It was because she was afraid for her life. End quote. Jody's trial was fast approaching, and the various media coverage created a climate that was very polarizing. So people loved Jody or they hated Jody. They sympathized with her or they condemned her. She was a walking contradiction, a woman teeming with sexual energy who also wanted to be a Mormon a doe-eyed, soft-spoken woman who, regardless of motive, was an admitted killer, at least according to her third version of events. So naturally, the media geared up to meet the demand of the masses in covering this trial. Jody Arias was the ultimate clickbait, a supervillain designed to draw eyeballs and ratings. CNN and True TV were granted access to cover the trial, similarly in fashion of OJ. It would be a courtroom saga unfolding in real time. Celebrity talking heads and commentators like Dr. Drew Pinsky and Nancy Grace weighed in on the standing of the case frequently, and many compared this media circus to that of Casey Anthony in her trial. And this, of course, begs the question, what was the draw? What was it about this case? And if you look back at other cases that elicited a media circus like this one, there hasn't been a case quite like it. There hasn't been one as provocative as this one, and there hasn't been one that had the documented sexual exploitations displayed in the evidence the way it did in this case. And no one had ever seen anything like it. So like we mentioned, finally, more than three years after Travis's murder, the trial of Jody Arias commenced on January 2nd of 2012. Yeah, it was very surreal watching it. And I watched it uh, almost every day. You know, it would have certainly been the exception if I did not watch the entire day and but yeah, it's like I'm watching this on national television almost round the clock. 
you know, and it was like, and it didn't stop with the trial, you know, because you're watching the trial and then you got to watch all the HLM shows, you know, you're watching all of this and you just, just absurd and ridiculous. But, um, it was very taxing. It was very emotional. You know, I dealt with some anger as you see people or Jody and, and the defense, um, lying about Travis and, you know, sometimes I would cry, uh, realizing that this isn't a movie, this isn't entertainment, this is this is my buddy and he's gone. And thinking about those last few moments of his life and this woman that he once upon a time loved is barbarically and savagely taking his life, you know, and how how afraid and how betrayed and how confused he must have been. Jody sat at the defense table. Her blonde bombshell persona was no more. She now had brown hair and bangs. She wore glasses and collars buttoned up to her chin. And she looked like an adult dressed for reform school in kids' clothes. If you look, her her defense attorney, there was Nermi, and then I forget the other woman's name. The other attorney's name was Jennifer Wilmot, Jody's death penalty attorney. She was short. She was a very short woman. And if you look in the trial, if you go back and watch the videos, when she's sitting next to Jody, well, Jody's tall. You know, she's above average height for a woman. I can't remember what, 5'8", 5'9", something like that. They got this special chair for her, but it, it, they had it lowered. You know how an office chair, it's got that little lever. You can go up or down. They had her chair purposely and throughout the entire trial lowered down to the lowest that it could be. And even though she was significantly taller than her female attorney, she was sat far below her in the trial. And all of that was for optics. So these optics that Chris is referring to, he's talking about making Jody look small, look meek, look harmless, look innocent. And that's what they were trying to achieve, not only with her clothes, not only with her hair, but with her stature next to this attorney, she's much lower, making her look tiny, defenseless. The prosecution's opening remarks included visual elements that included photos of the crime scene and the hours leading up to it. First, there were the naked photos that Travis took of Jody. They were very matter-of-fact, Jody lying on the bed with a closed-mouth smile, very naked, very confident, very sexual and flirtatious. Then the photos made it clear that Jody was given the camera, and there were photos of Travis. His eyes fixated on the lens of the camera as Jody, the aspiring photographer, took pictures of him. Next came the crime scene photos. And the contrast between how the sexual and playful photos juxtaposed against the gory crime scene photos. This no doubt added to the shock value. Just another one of those moments in the trial that just shocked everybody is when when Juan Martinez... For reference, Juan Martinez is the prosecutor in this case. Without warning anybody in the courtroom, without warning Travis's siblings, nobody. He throws the photo up of Travis's dead body, you know, neck gaping wide open, body starting to decompose, purple and, and, and white in color. And, oh, you know, people, I tried so hard not to see that image and he shocked you know the courtroom and he threw that up there and if i'm not mistaken there was an immediate objection you know and it was just this it was really like a tv moment and then um 
uh, and the family was mortified. If, if you, you know, saw that moment, you remember that there was this audible gasp because they had not, some of them had not seen that photo and it worked hard to stay away from seeing the photo. Prosecutor Juan Martinez summarized the various stories that Jody told to law enforcement during the investigation and pointed out how the story morphed and changed over time to make her seem innocent. It's as if she was simply throwing things against the wall to see what would stick before finally settling on self-defense as the motive. Next, the state poured over Travis's many injuries. Prosecutor Martinez said the following. There were three different ways Alexander could have received a death blow. He was shot. He was stabbed in the heart and his throat was slit from ear to ear. As he was nearing the conclusion of his opening argument, Prosecutor Martinez played a video portion of one of Jody's media interviews in which she said, mark my words, no jury will convict me. He closed his statement, he looked at the jury, and he urged them to, in fact, mark Jody's words. The defense followed with their opening statement, and their strategy was to portray Jody as a battered, emotionally abused woman who was forced to satisfy the deviant demands of her tyrant lover. They planned to paint Travis as a pedophile, as an abuser, as a terrible person. But there was one problem with that. Based on the evidence, which included sexual photos, recordings, and text messages, it didn't seem as if Travis was the aggressor, nor was he forcing Jody to do anything. In fact, Jody was the one who seemed to be the catalyst for most of their documented sexual escapades. You are right, though, that in the bath. Oh, God. Oh, when we took a bath together? You were amazing. You made me, seriously, you made me feel like a goddess. Did you have sexual relations in the bathtub? Yes. And what sort of sexual relations did you have? That was one time we had vaginal sex. Um, we actually did twice in the bathtub. Why did he say this kind of sex was okay? I didn't think it was serious. He said it's underwater, so it doesn't count. You introduced me to KY, did you know that? I introduced you to KY? I'd never, I've heard of it, obviously, but I've never used it. <laughs> you know, I had never used it uh, until, and I'd always heard of it until one day I just thought, because it's so cliched and people make fun of it and, you know, but it's great stuff. No, it's awesome. There's nothing else. Did you There's eat much now? No, 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 no. I need freaking baffling. Oh, does that line work? It seems so thick. Did you, in fact, introduce Travis to it? Um, yes, I did. Why? He refused to be seen in public buying personal lubricant, so I brought KY over one time, and, yeah. I love it when you grab my butt, because it feels nice. <laughs> But you only do it, like, when you're trying to prove a point to somebody else. <laughs> That's not true, but I always do it when I'm trying to prove a point to someone else. That's true. You, you cannot say I don't work that booty. Oh, never mind. You do know how to work the booty. <laughs> Was this a fairly persistent pattern with him? If he thought a guy might be interested, he would grab your butt? Well, in public, he only did it around when other, when he perceived other men to be watching us. Eventually, we're both going to remarry people, and I just get the feeling that there aren't a lot of Mormon guys like that. And there may or may not. I'm sure there are plenty of freaky Mormon girls, but are they the marrying type? I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm just saying, are they the type that 
you'd want to marry are the guys out there, the types I'd want to marry. I like how you play whatever role you need to play. Yeah, you, I like the play. That's fun. Yeah, if you need to, you know, handle me, you'll handle me. If you need to be handled, you'll be handled. Oh, I know. And I know you love being handled, but, like, if I had to put this one before the other, I like being handled. He was very mean to me during some of the, this period of time at times and when he wanted phone sex or something like that he was really nice and I liked that side of him so I wanted to do prolong it and I guess you could say draw it out or or enjoy it while it lasted because he would turn into Mr. Hyde soon or whatever the analogy is. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to Allo Moves com and use code first for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code first, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code first. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a 
a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. One main priority for the defense was, of course, to make sure Jody was spared the death penalty if she were to be convicted. Because remember, Jody's defense attorney, Jennifer Wilmot, was brought in specifically for this purpose. So during her opening statement, she acknowledged that, yes, Jody had killed Travis, but said that there were very specific reasons why Jody did it. They claimed that Travis had pressured Jody into having sex with him, every kind of sex that you can think of. Jennifer's opening statements were then concluded, and the prosecution called their first witness, Maria Hall. You might remember Maria Hall from part one. Maria also went by Mimi. Remember her? She is the one who was joining Travis on that trip to Cancun with Chris and his wife, Skye. She was the one, you know, they had met at a Mormon singles event, and Travis was interested in dating her. And she completely disputed Jody's claim that Travis was ill-tempered. She said Travis never lost control of his emotions, never raised his voice, and was always sweet and made her feel safe. And as the trial barreled forward, more witnesses were called. The prosecution played audio recordings that were collected throughout the investigation. These included the initial calls where Jody offered the police any help that she could and were also the ones where she denied seeing Travis for months. In these recordings, she lies so effortlessly because as we know, Jody was now not denying killing Travis. The argument she was making now was that Travis's slang was justified. And let's pretend for a moment that we're in fantasy land and that Travis's killing did play out as Jody said. What kind of innocent person not only doesn't call the police, but also feigns concern and helpfulness when the police contacts them during the investigation? It just really doesn't look good for Jody right now. But back to what she said on that first call. Jody, unsolicited, offered up information about how strong Travis was, stating that she was shocked that anyone had been able to overpower him. I think what you said that's super interesting is saying that she was uh, telling the police officer, I can't believe someone could overpower him. And it's almost like pumping herself up in a way because like he's yeah. so strong how did someone do it and it's like she knows she did it it only and must I just be think like a super woman like a really yeah, strong it girl seems really like a narcissistic sort of like let me uh toot my own horn sort of thing she's anyway. like setting the stage for her own victory exactly be- because remember the the defense that she was going to be using at this point was that she wasn't even there right at this point in the phone call Other testifying witnesses were called in the form of Heather Connor, the Mesa Police Department fingerprint examiner. She took the jury through photos of the prints at the scene, explaining how the bloody palm print on the wall contained a mixture of Travis and Jody's DNA. The medical examiner took the stand and then walked the jury through Travis's injuries. Then the state's forensic firearms expert took the stand. 
She examined the bullet casing found at the scene, as well as the bullet lodged in Travis's cheek. The bullet and casing had come from a Winchester 25 caliber handgun. And remember what we learned in last week's episode, that the home of Jody's grandparents was burglarized, and of the few items taken, her grandfather's 25 caliber handgun was one of them. However, it was during the trial that Jody's defense told a different story about where the gun used in Travis's murder had come from. Jody had found it in Travis's room while they were fighting. And according to Jody, she said that after Travis attacked her in the bathroom for dropping the camera, she ran to his closet to try to escape. There, on a top shelf, she found Travis's gun, and that's what she shot him with. No, emphatically, unequivocally, Travis Alexander did not own a gun. Not a big gun, not a small gun, no guns. He did shoot. Sometimes some of us would go out together and go shooting, but he always, always, always borrowed, you know, he just used the guns that showed up. He never had a gun. And so when Jody told that preposterous story of running around and around and around and finally, you know, climbing up Travis's custom closet and grabbing the gun out of the holster that he kept in the top of his closet. It's like, come on. So no, that was all, of course, you know, a lie, like 99% of the rest of the things she said. And no, he never owned a gun. The next witness to make a splash in court was Ryan Burns. Y'all remember Ryan Burns from our previous episodes. He was the newest love interest of Jody's following Travis. He was also a coworker of Travis and Jody's. They were all friends at prepaid legal. He was also Jody's alibi. She had first claimed that she was on the way to see Ryan when Travis was being killed. Of course, now that's all gone to shit, now that she's admitted to having killed Travis in quote-unquote self-defense. So this means that Jody would have gotten to Ryan's house in less than 24 hours from when she killed Travis in self-defense. And here's what Ryan said on the stand. Let's see if her account and behavior aligns with Ryan's story. Ryan testified that Jody was late arriving at his Utah home on June 5th, 2008, the day after Travis was murdered. And her excuse was that she got lost and stopped to rest. She took a nap in her car. Ryan was also surprised that when he greeted Jody when she finally did arrive, the beautiful blonde had abruptly dyed her hair brown. Shocking and seemingly for no reason. She also had cuts and bandages on her hands. And Jody's excuse was that she cut herself or burned herself while working at this Margaritaville restaurant in Wairika. And as we've discussed previously during the investigation, the police learned that no such restaurant existed. And Ryan Burns continued. He detailed this heated makeout session they had the day following Travis's slang. And he noted that Jody kept trying to escalate the encounter, pushing it further and further. Jody was giggling and flirting and being seductive, which again does not look good for her. If she really killed Travis in self-defense, this traumatic experience, how do you explain her lack of reaction the following day? The prosecution presented witness after witness in the form of receipts from the rental car that Jody used to travel the 2,834 miles from Wairika to Arizona and then to Utah to see Ryan Burns. And then there was the Perry Mason moment where, where Martinez walks the courtroom through Jody's gas can um, situation. You know, she got a couple of gas cans from her ex-boyfriend, Daryl, and then she bought another gas can. And Martinez had 
figured out all the math and the mileage and he found her bank statements and he had receipts and he strung her up on the stand. And I mean, it was literally a mic drop moment and I didn't see it happen live. I don't know why, but I was, I was in this little private room on the backside of the courtroom. I, now I can't even remember why I was there, but I happened to be in that room back there right after Martinez had this, you know, career making moment on live national television. And he came back into this room. I've actually never told this story before, but he came back into this little room and he was like, you know, a 17 year old kid that just won the, the championship game. I mean, he was jumping around and, and I can't even repeat what he was saying because he was dropping you know, <laughs> the F ball and I got her, I got her, that F and, you know, he's just so fired up because <laughs> I mean, it was, and, and to his you know defense, it was a pretty cool moment and he did a great job of stringing her up on that, but he basically proved that, you know, she had more gas cans that she said, than she said she did. And he had the gas receipts to prove it, that she filled them all up. And for those that aren't really familiar with the whole story, you know, she needed enough gas to get through the desert and go from LA to Utah, you know, without having to pull over for gas. So she wasn't using her uh, debit card or being seen on a on a surveillance camera at a gas station between Phoenix or between Mesa and uh, Utah, where she was going to hook up with Ryan Burns. So anyway, those are some of the moments that really uh, stand out to me. And remember all the while during the trial, there's intense media coverage that continues to top the headlines. And here's the kind of stuff that they were fixated on. At one point, Jody had said that she had been pregnant and miscarried during the trial. Then remember the woman that she said she had fallen in love with in jail? Jody thought this woman was her life partner. And she was so sure she'd be acquitted that they were planning to have a baby together when Jody got out of prison. She even had a male friend lined up to donate sperm. Jody then started a public feud with Nancy Grace. And here's how that unfolded. While Jody was in jail, she became very close with one of her cellmates, a woman named Donovan Bearing. Donovan was slated to get out, and once she did, Jody asked Donovan if she would run a Twitter account for her from behind bars, and Donovan agreed. So Jody would dictate the contents of the tweets. And one of the people she wanted to go toe-to-toe with was Nancy Grace. Jody referred to her as N Disgrace and began provoking her on Twitter. In one particular news segment, Nancy accused Jody of giving the finger to the camera in court. Jody clapped back on Twitter and said, Actually, Nancy, that finger was for you. Have a nice day. Jody's followers doubled, tripled, quadrupled daily. And in addition to attacking Nancy, she also went after Juan Martinez, who was the man who was prosecuting her. In one tweet, she said, Those afflicted with little man syndrome taint society's perception of genuinely good men who happen to be vertically challenged. So it's no surprise that this kind of cat and mouse game that Jody was playing with the media exploded in the form of even more news coverage. People could not believe the balls on this chick, especially because she was so clearly and obviously guilty. 
So Jody had already been a media darling in the almost four years since Travis's murder, but whatever happened prior would pale into comparison to the coverage of Jody Arias taking the stand in her own defense. Jody testified for 18 days, and she was asked to explain everything from the former couple's sex life to their Mormonism. She said that Travis had a preference for anal sex because it wasn't as severe of a violation of the Mormon doctrine. Jody also said that Travis was emotionally and physically abusive to her. She told a story claiming that he choked her to the point of her passing out. And it's for this reason that Jody was terrified of Travis when he attacked her so brutally for dropping his camera. When Jody was questioned about certain details about the crime, she said she couldn't remember, and she was in a quote-unquote fog. Her claim was that she was in a state of post-traumatic amnesia, which is so convenient for her. One of the stories Jody told on the stand related to the day of her baptism. And remember, Travis was the one that baptized her, and Chris spoke that day of the baptism. And then they went back to Chris and his wife, Sky's house. She tells a story about how they left the baptism where Travis baptized her. They went back to Chris and Sky Hughes' house. Travis took her into a room, you know, locked the door, ripped her clothes off and sodomized her. You know, it's like, come on, you know, like just insanity. Their relationship wasn't to that point. At, at that point, you know, I, I don't believe it's possible, but I don't believe that they were having sex at that point. Um, I really have a hard time believing that Travis would have, you know, baptized her with the, the hopes of marrying her in the Mormon temple, um, you know, while at the same time they're engaging in, 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 in sex and, you know, I just don't think that that's true. I think that the, I, I certainly don't. I certainly disbelieve Jody's story. Like that was just an insane story. She made that up to turn the Mormon population or the Christian population against uh, in the, of the jurors, you know, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of Mormons in, uh, in Arizona. Um, and obviously there were, there were believers, maybe some other Christians on the jury, so she was, that was just her effort to kind of taint the jury. And Chris made a fascinating observation about the kind of storyteller that Jody is. She tells the story on the stand of r- coming to Travis's house, running up the stairs, barging into his room, and she saw him masturbating on his bed to a printed out photograph of a little boy in Spider-Man or Superman underwear. Well, that obviously, first of all, stupid freaking story, right? We have the internet. If somebody wants to look at porn, they're going to sit at their desk and look at porn and, you know, do whatever else that they're going to do. Well, but her story is, no, Travis took the time to print out (laughs) this picture of a little boy in Spider-Man or Superman underwear. Then he takes it over to his bed and he's kneeling on his knees and, you know, doing what he, what, what she said he was doing. Disgusting, vile, nonsensical BS story. Well, here's the, uh, the, um, the part of truth that was in that story. Jody was at my house one day and my son was in Spider-Man or Superman underwear 
and Jody was taking photographs of him. And Jody has those pictures on her hard drive, right? They're on her hard drive, and they were found by the, by the prosecution. So that's how Jody operates. She'll take something from real life, and then she'll extrapolate and add all of these nonsensical BS, uh, you know, points of, of, uh, of, you know, her, the storyline that are completely and totally manufactured. But think about the irony of that. She's saying, here's Travis Alexander with a picture of a boy in, you know, superhero underwear on his bed. And the real story is she's the one who not only, you know, took that picture, but had that picture on her hard drive. So just another interesting side note. So a big part of the trial and something that can't be overlooked are the phone conversations that were recorded and played for the jury. I'm going to come soon, honey. I'll tell you what I was thinking about today. All right, but if I come, don't come yet, okay? Because then I'll come two times. You can come a second time. basically having phone sex. So you may be wondering, why does the defense have these? Why did Jody have these? Why would somebody record intimate conversations like this? Chris believes that these phone conversations played a role in not only Jody's decision to kill Travis, but he also thinks Jody used them as a way to make Travis let his guard down. And if you recall, Chris told us that he believed Jody recording these calls was a ploy to manipulate him and to really just be controlling and scare him. And Chris explained that this is because at this point, when Jody was recording these calls, Travis was trying to get back in the good graces of his bishop so he could get his temple recommend back. And during a fight, Jody, we think, brought up the fact that she recorded these calls. This threw Travis into a rage. And this is the heated conversation that Chris saw in Travis's Gmail account in Google Chats. So then the belief here is that Jody showed up in Arizona, Mesa, Arizona, even though they were in a terrible, terrible fight. There, she says, Travis, these are the only copies of these audio recordings. I'm giving them back. I'm so, so sorry. Travis, being the compassionate dude he is, forgives, forgets, invites her in. So that's the reasoning and the theory behind why Jody would have these recordings and therefore they ended up in the defense evidence. And while it seemed like this trial lasted forever, it did eventually come to an end. After four months of testimony, each side delivered their closing statements. Kirk Nermy concluded, what this evidence shows, it is that either what happened is that Jody Arias defended herself and didn't know when to stop, or she gave in to a sudden heat of passion. Ultimately, if Miss Arias is guilty of any crime at all, it is the crime of manslaughter and nothing more. When the jury entered the deliberation room, they had the option to give her either first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or manslaughter with a potential death penalty phase to follow unless she's acquitted. As we all know, the jury found Jody Arias guilty. That was a unanimous decision. 
But what the jury couldn't agree on is whether Jody deserved life without parole or the death penalty. You know, my feeling is she worked hard for the death penalty. She deserved the death penalty. That that was the prize that she had worked so hard for. And I really wanted that to happen. And depending on what your politics are, in large part, you know, that that will tell us maybe how you feel about the death penalty. But here's my feeling about the death penalty. If it's the law, it's the law, you know, and if somebody wants to go and rally and change the law, well, then knock yourself out. But this was a death penalty case in the state of Arizona where they have the death penalty. And I was all for it. You know, I'm still all for it. And it's the law of the land. The jury deadlocked on the death penalty phase not once, but twice. The second time, 11 out of the 12 jurors voted to give Jody the death penalty. One juror, a 33-year-old mother of three, wouldn't budge. That was juror number 17. Jody was granted the opportunity to address the court following her sentencing, and she took that opportunity to take one final dig at Travis's friends and family. Until very recently, I could not have imagined standing before you all and asking you to give me life. To me, life in prison was the most unappealing outcome I could possibly think of. I thought I'd rather die. But as I stand here now, I can't in good conscience ask you to sentence me to death. Because of them. When Jody says because of them, she motions towards her family sitting in the courtroom. Then she reaches behind her and picks up a t-shirt off of the defense table and holds it up. I've designed a t-shirt. This is the t-shirt. Um, of which 100% of the proceeds go to support nonprofit organizations which also assist other victims of domestic violence. Some people may not believe that I am a survivor of domestic violence. They're entitled to their opinion. I'm supporting this cause because it's very, very important to me. So as we know, Jody's sentencing is not where the story ends. We continue to hear about her. And following her sentence, a feud between Jody and her trusted attorney of six years, Kirk Nurmi, played out publicly. Nurmi published a book called Trapped with Miss Arius. It was a tell-all book about the time that he spent defending her. Jody sued him after the book was published, and Nurmi ended up losing his law license as a result. That's like a big deal. That he loses his law license? I mean, it's the most high-profile case of his life. He probably took it to, to advance his career, and then he loses his law license. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I it's mean, crazy. that's a risky thing to do. I'm sure he probably weighed the risk of, you, you know, that you could definitely face consequences of doing something like that. So for him to think it's that big of a deal. Well, he's super polarizing. Um, this is the thing. Kirk Nurmi, oh, such a victim. You were stuck with Jody and he ruined your life. You were dragging an innocent murder victim through the mud saying he's a pedophile. It's hard to feel bad for him. Granted, right. it is his job to defend Jody, but I think a, a criminal defense attorney, there's a line, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that is just how you sleep at night when his poor sisters are like sitting in, in the, the seats of the court and you're calling somebody who was brutalized a pedophile when it's total lies. I mean, total lies. Yeah. It, and you can tell just the, the character 
and the type of character that he has is that not only is he um, uh, does the prosecution and the victim's family hate him, but also the person that he was defending uh, <laughs> sues him. You know, he 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 not only was a a poor lawyer and a vicious lawyer, but he also did not even protect at the end his own client. By you know violating client privilege, which which you can do at the end there, but it's still it's not really the most ethical thing to do, and that's why Jody sued him. I don't think it is ethical. I mean, I think he can't do that, which is why he did it, and she actually won that lawsuit, and he was disbarred. And I he mean, lost it his is wallet. And so, yeah. totally, it is totally unethical to start then because you're basically sabotaging her shot at appeal. It's a big deal at, at appeal. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like your own I mean, lawyer you, cannot I mean, turn yeah. on you. No, you see it. Well, that's the thing is that he turned on her. You've seen lawyers can have done it before, but it's usually like I'm trying, you know, I, I'm still trying to get this person out. This is what happened during the case. This is our story. But uh, to turn on somebody like that, you're right. Yeah, that's it's bad. He's bad news all around. Later, he told the press that he was undergoing cancer treatments. He then said the reason he'd gotten cancer was because of Jody. Nermi told a reporter, quote, what I went through with Miss Arias was very traumatic for me in retrospect. I think my role in the Arias trial and everything that happened was the reason cancer infested my body. That's a bold statement. It reminds me a lot of what happened with Robert Kardashian. I mean, I, um, that's exactly what I was thinking as I was reading through that. It's very, very similar. Well, and it, it does tell you maybe the only reason you'd even project that onto your quote, your cancer, right? He's cancer. A lot of people would be like, I have cancer. It's science. There are variables in the world that cause me to get cancer. The reason he would project that onto that is if he feels guilty, I think. Yeah. Um, where it's gotta be because of Jody. It's gotta be because I defended Jody. I was traumatized by Jody. It's like, no dude, you, you pretend you don't give a fuck. You pretend you're like badass defense attorney who can slander a dead man, but you didn't feel good about it. You felt bad about it, but you did it anyway. And you knew it was unethical and you did it anyway. So now you think cancer is your karma. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's justifying this bad karma that's come upon him. It's very interesting. And what I think was interesting about him, I've watched some interviews with him and he's kind of like an unsung character in this saga um, because he was also saying he's glad his law license got taken away. And he said, after Jody, I never wanted to practice law again. So maybe he knew, maybe it was the last straw. Maybe it was like, I can't be this scumbag ever again. There's a lot to it. And I think it's really interesting. And the fact that little old Jody, this little blonde, hundred pound nothing, scares grown men, truly. I mean, she does. Everyone who talks about her just says she's a sociopath. So Lord knows what experiences he had with her. Okay, so he also said that Jody gave him the will to fight the disease, saying that I feared that my death would permit Miss Arius's lies to taint my legacy. Speaking of legacy preserving, of course, the only legacy that we're really concerned with preserving here is Travis Alexander's. Millions of people around the world that followed this trial, and actually one of the reasons why uh, my kid's mom and I wrote, wrote the book is because people had questions. The title of the book is Our Friend Travis. It was co-authored by um, Sky and I, my kid's mom. And so this was a labor of love. Um, this book was written to defend Travis's honor. It was written as an exclamation point on the backside of his legacy. It was written to help people come to know and love the same Travis Alexander that we love. 
And it was written to answer questions and to fill in the blanks for anybody that was interested in in his life or in the trial or, you know, the backstory. I want the audience, you know, your audience to know, first and foremost, 100% of every penny that I receive in royalties from this book go to Travis's uh, favorite charity, which is the Perpetual Education Fund. Chris and Sky, back when this happened 12 years ago, they were sort of embroiled in every aspect of this case. Backstory, trial, being dragged into it with these fabricated letters, their family implicated, and ultimately sort of recovering through this process and recovering from being at the focal point of one of these media circus trials. So what does it look like now? Does he miss Travis? And how has he healed over time? You know, as I look back on that time, it's it's a really bizarre thing. And I don't know if this is the subconscious way of, you know, protecting me from such a scary, devastating situation. But as I look back on all of this, and it it's like it's it was a movie. You know what I mean? It was like it, it's like that does not feel like real life. For many many years, I didn't go a day without thinking about him. I miss him terribly. Travis is my my buddy, my business partner, like a little brother that I never had. I used to cry about it. I mean, even five years ago, I I couldn't get through a conversation, you know, without crying about it. Um, so I do feel like some significant level of healing has occurred. But it is weird to have these conversations because I feel like I'm telling you about a movie that I watched. I'm glad that y'all are doing what you're doing. And I've listened to some of your other podcasts. Y'all do great work. It's a little bit therapeutic for me. So this is, I've enjoyed this. So thank you. Jody Arias is a curious, polarizing, horrible figure in pop culture. So... I'm sure you're wondering, how does somebody like Chris, who's lost so much and whose life has impacted by her actions so much, feel about her today? You know, it, it's, it's interesting how I feel because now, you know, at first you're just angry and you want to hurt her. You know what I mean? You want to get her back somehow. You know, I think that's the natural human response to, to such an evil thing. But over time, I realized I'm a spiritual person and I realized I have to forgive her, you know, not for her, for me. Um, If I don't forgive her, then Jody Arias will forever have power in my life and in my heart and in my soul. And if I can forgive her, I can neutralize. I can basically cut the thread between Jody and I or the rope, right? There's this rope, this emotional, energetic rope. And, and she, she has this rope around my emotions, around my heart. And it's always going to be there unless I can forgive her. And so very early on, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but very early on, I was able to just neutralize that and forgive her for what she had done. And since then, you know, it's interesting because today I have, I have, I actually have compassion for her. Um, you know, I went from anger and hatred to a place where I could forgive her, but like, I don't ever want to hear about you. See, you know, just, just be gone. You know, like I forgive you, you're forgiven. But now it's like, I do have great compassion for her because she has to live with this. You know, 
I mean, she's in prison for the rest of her life. She has to keep this story. She has to continue to live the lies in an effort to hopefully maybe somehow, some crazy way, get out of jail at some point. She can't own it. And I know we said we'd only focus on Travis's legacy, but I guess in some ways, Jody's leaving one behind too. I mean, think about it. You know, I, I had a friend in in the UK who interestingly became friends with somebody who lived, who worked in the jail through all of this trial and stuff. And this person that worked in the jail shared this list of things that Jody had just purchased or was wanting to purchase from the, the, the store in the jail. But she was buying um, antifungal cream for her athlete's foot. She was buying dandruff, some sort of dandruff shampoo for her hair, for her head. She was buying something for her, her herpes. She had herpes, uh, like a fever blister or something on her lip. You know, like literally she's falling apart. She's separated from the world and she has to live with the fact that she's one of the most notorious, disgusting, vile murderers that America has ever produced, right? That's her legacy. Okay, huge, huge thank you to Chris for being our first reconnection today. Thank you so much for sharing your story over the past three episodes. You are very vulnerable and amazing, and we've very much appreciate it. If anybody else has a story they'd like to tell us, please email us hello at the first You can also use that email to send in your art submissions. Again, it's hello at the first We're going to have an art show next Wednesday, the 20th. So send them all in there. We'll get the submissions ready and we'll have a cocktail and have a good time. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar and stick around because we're going to kill some time and go over some of the craziest Jody Arias conspiracy theories. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But, but not, not that, close. that close. Happy cocktail day. Sources for our three episodes on Jody Arias include New York Magazine, The Huffington Post, ABC News, Fox News, CBS News, Phoenix New Times, AZ Central, USA Today, and of course, our interviews with our First Degree Connections are always our largest source. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries a state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. 
character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. All right. Well, welcome to Killing Time. This is going to be a very exciting episode because we're going to go through all the craziest fucking conspiracy theories about Jodi Arias. I think we're all pretty big fans of conspiracy theories because they're always wacky, but these are going to be good. And Alexis found a lot of them. I did. So we're going to start with one that we briefly referenced in the episode. We talked about how one juror held out during the death penalty phase of the trial. So it happened twice. We won't get into the first one about why the jury couldn't decide on whether or not she should get the death penalty. But the second time around, 11 jurors voted for death. In one juror, juror 17 held out and voted for life without parole. Now, after this juror did this, death threats, crazy shit happened. And but if you do some digging, and we we need to discuss this because it's very odd, when you dig into Juror 17's past, you find out that Prosecutor Martinez had actually tried her ex-husband and sent him oh. to jail. She'd also been abused in both of her relationships and had, you know, clearly had a bias about domestic violence and things like that. So she shouldn't have been a juror in this case. No one knows why she was. And no one knows why this isn't a bigger deal than it is. So a lot of people online basically say that she was, quote unquote, a stealth juror who fooled everyone to save Jody from the needle. So what do we think about that? Is there, it doesn't look good, you know, like she shouldn't have been on that panel. So like are they're pretty much saying that like in an act of defiance, she was saying no the, to the death penalty to number one, stick it to the prosecutor, right? Because yes, which is a huge conflict of interest. Yes. And then also she obviously has a bias towards uh, domestic violence. Yeah, that that is interesting. There's just no reason why she should have been on this jury. And this is the when they were selecting the jury, this is the fault of um, 
of the, you the know, the defense would have wanted her on there. The defense was probably yeah. happy. I wonder if they oh, even yeah. found out. But the prosecution just did not do their due diligence. And, um, you know, it's it's unfortunate because uh, Billy, though, the article. So Billy sent me an article about this right before we recorded. And it said that on her questionnaire, she was honest about these things. So it's not really? about the prosecution doing diligence, but she was honest in her questionnaire because they have that. I don't know. Yeah, there has to be some like underlying secret meaning why they let it go through. Because if she was, that's what I was going to ask. Like, it, did she just hide that? And she was kind of trying to get on that jury so she could fucking stick it to that guy. But apparently, if she was being honest about it, then something along the lines must have gotten crossed and sticky. So that's that, everyone. But we're going to move on to our next conspiracy theory. And the common one, if you do a little Google, is that Jodi Arias is, in fact, the same person as Kourtney Kardashian. <laughs> Which is so wild. You had mentioned this to us in passing the other day. And I was like, wait a second. We can't. I Now I'm going to want to fucking Google everything. Because I. that's like the John Benet, Katy Perry conspiracy theory level weird. Yeah. It's or so Ted Cru- odd. Ted Cruz Zodiac. Yeah. Ted Cruz Zodiac. Yeah. Why do people also- do this? Also, like, why would Kim and Courtney be like, you can be our fake sister, no problem. I, I just don't see how they would have been welcomed into the Kardashian home with open arms if it was Jody. I mean, explain also, that to me. Also explain the fact that she's in jail and Courtney Kardashian is walking around. So are we doubling a cloning a person or what's how does this it's not like she's dead? So there were all these rumors in 2016 that Jody was let out of prison because of some incident that happened with the warden or with one of the prison guards. And right. I looked on Snopes right before this and it Love discounted it. it and gave all these reasons. So I think it probably stemmed from that. It's like, was Jody let out? Who is she now? Where is she hiding? She's Kourtney Kardashian. But also people just, <laughs> people just want to cling to crazy shit, I think. But like you know, this, this actually was the first way I, I got involved in any kind of quasi detective work was the idea that that Paul McCartney had died in a traffic mm-hmm. accident and then he was replaced with a clone. And um, there were clues on each of the covers of the Beatles albums. And I was just very much into that when I was five years old. <laughs> this is a thing that people just like to do. Isn't it um, I Am the Walrus played backwards as Paul is Dead as well? Paul is, Paul is Dead, miss him, miss him, yeah. I think people I can, just I find that stuff. <laughs> but, like, the, I can understand, like, the Jean Benet, Katy Perry one because... I've never one, even heard that one. What are you talking about? It just people basically that Katy, Katy Perry is Jean Benet? Is Jean Benet. I don't, I don't know, like, many details about it, but that's the general conspiracy theory. But that one would Why make would, sense... Because somebody died and then now somebody is alive, but now there's two or there's two living people that they're saying are the same person. That's where I don't understand unless we're in some like, like overlap of universes or something. Why would the Ramseys give their child to Katy Perry's family? <laughs> I need to look into this. We need to do a different episode about this one. So I can Honestly, give a little we need bit to more do information. A conspiracy theories killing time next time too. Cause I've got questions, man. Uh, I know. Um, so the next thing I have here that I want you guys to comment on comes from website bandcast.com mm-hmm. slash why I believe Jody Aries is innocent. Oh God. Quote, there is ample evidence to suggest that Jody did not kill Travis and instead the victim of an elaborate premeditated hoax. Because while Jody may have only slightly injured Travis in self-defense, 
as she has claimed in numerous testimonies, it is evident that Travis later retaliated by killing himself in such a way as to make it appear as though Jody had killed him. He's going to show her, he's going to really stick it to her by stabbing himself a million times. Um, and for all of those who staunchly claim that there is no way for a man to first shoot himself in the face and then stab himself 27 times and lastly slit his own throat with the seeming intention of cutting off his own head, I say, you poor naive fool. Wow. Mm-hmm. What yeah. the fuck? I know. This is what happens, you know, before the internet, we had people just saying this stuff in bars and then after the internet we gave anybody anybody could actually tell the world this and could publish it they could go into a public library and publish it uh, and put it out there for all the world this is what the internet has wrought well i'm just wondering how did a conspiracy theory spread before the internet because now obviously people can get can get on 4chan and like the dark dark corners of the internet to spread these different theories yeah. and make Jody Arias is innocent.com or whatever that is. But like, well, it, yeah, it was, they were spread through things like, um, urban legend summer camps. You know, you, you would have it be like, you know, you, you know, when you have all of these people go to summer camps, right. And then you go back to your hometowns and then you start creating all of these urban legends. Like Mikey died from eating pop rocks and soda, um, all, <laughs> or the, or the Kennedy assassination, you know, that was with books and, and things. So, uh, the conspiracy theories, they, at least they, they, they had like two kind of levels. There were one where somebody might write a book and then might end up on television, but there was also just like the stuff that was talked about in bars and playgrounds. That's so crazy. Well, the, this Jody Arias Travis killed himself conspiracy theory is what did they say you naive fools or something at the end you naive fools you naive fools yes I love that I'm I also like, using that uh, yeah you naive fool that's such a good uh diss but it's I just such wanna, a good I would like a little like if we're so naive and foolish I would like them to explain themselves a little bit better like why why are we so dumb for thinking that a man cannot physically do that harm to himself yeah and and beyond that why would travis want to i mean he had a, a vacation planned in a couple of days with a beautiful girl and his best friend he was it's not like he was obsessed with jody and the roles are reversed that he'd want to get her back like i i'm so obsessed with you i'm gonna ruin your life and you'll think about me every day that's what she was thinking he wasn't right. obsessed with her. He was like, oh, you showed up at my door and you're sexy. I'm going to indulge in this, but I shouldn't be. And can and you leave ASAP because Mimi is going to show up soon. Exactly. So I don't think there's a lot of um, weight there. But I'm on Reddit right now, and I do think there's an interesting thing here. I think a lot of people who question, and I'm not saying there are a lot of people that question, but of the ones who do question, I think a lot of people are hung up on the sequence of events as far as the gun and the stabbings. Mm -hmm. Some people believe that the stabbings happened first and then the gun. Some people think the gun happened first and the stabbings. One of the um, forensic scientists testified that the bullet casing was found in a pool of congealed blood, suggesting that um, the knife was used first. But when Chris laid out his theory, he's like, there's no way Jody would have wanted to try to incapacitate him up and up and close with a knife first. Why would you do that? Travis is right. four times your size. The gun theory makes more sense because you'd shoot him. So he's like disoriented and fucked up and then you use the knife. Um, I think 
and but you know, I'm on Reddit and people are arguing that the gun was backup in case something happened to the knife, knocked out of her hand. This is personal and executed with rage. That's a good point. If a rage killing would be done with a knife. So I think this confusion about the sequence of the injuries and what weapon was used confuses people. And it should. I mean, because the gun is not Chris's theory makes the most sense to me, but it doesn't align with this rage up close and personal killing. Cause why would she then only use the knife as a backup? I have a question with, um, women that kill their, I guess like quote unquote lovers. Is it usually, is there some type of a weapon that's usually used over another one? Because I know obviously for men, it's mostly knife killings or strangulation or strangulation but for a woman that you're obviously half the size of the person that you're trying to kill something hers is is premeditated she went to go get the gun so you would think and a gun obviously is an easier way to to kill somebody immediately Mm -hmm. so you would think that you know i don't know i would think that it would be the gun would be the probably the the weapon that you would use first So I think women differ from men in that, um, you know, sort of domestic violence killings, which is what this is, you know what I mean? Women are a lot like men, knives or stranglings. If it's super personal, women just aren't as strong as men. And while she may want to strangle him, it's like the gun is sort of physically probably the gambit. Exactly. But like if we're talking about serial killers, women are generally more passive, like poisonings and yeah accidents and and you know what like oh and you also hear a lot of these like uh staged burglaries and then you accidentally shoot the Mm -hmm. husband it's like you don't see a lot of knife killings with because it's probably really hard but not tons yeah it's really hard to do woof billy so one of the things that strikes me about this case is that the idea of jody arias as being the second most hated woman in true crime. And I think if you were to ask people who's the most hated woman in true crime, they're all, all going to say Casey, Casey Anthony. Anthony. <laughs> all going to say Lori Vallow is going to beat her soon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lori oh, yes. Vallow yeah. might be number one now. Yeah. I mean, that's because um, everyone in her life has been murdered and her kids, two kids are missing. And it's like, yeah. she, all she does is smile in court. No, she's the biggest piece of shit. Yeah. So then you've got, I mean, you have like Susan Smith and the, but, but it's still, it's like, it, it Jody Susan Arias. Smith? Susan Smith is the woman that uh, killed her kids by driving them into the water. Um, that was old. Uh, that was one of the first ones like that, though, sure, where yeah. she lied. And, yeah. but that was, you know, 80s. Sure. Well, I think it was 90s, but yeah, you don't have to make me seem older than I am. <laughs> but I think the, and the fact that this was a, a woman who killed her, her boyfriend and, there was I, there was very few people that kind of came to her defense, other than these real fringe aspects that were that we'll get into it a little bit. But she really is. Whenever you know, if you were to go up to anybody at CrimeCon and say who's the most hated woman in true crime, uh, that first they would say Anthony, and second they would say Jodi Arias. I think that's interesting too, because most of these women that people. The, the most hated women all have killed their kids. So I think that there is an aspect of that where it's, if you're going to murder your child, there is a special place in hell for you there. So this is interesting that 
it was her boyfriend, like wasn't even her husband, which kind of goes to show how big of a piece of shit she is that she can go and make it to the top of that list without having all of these other aspects that usually kind of just push women up to the top of that list anyways. Well, I think for Casey Anthony, the idea that she killed her toddler and then was out partying, I mean, it's just, it's just a taste people cannot get out of their mouths where it's like no. you cannot be partying after your child dies accidentally. You can't, it does not make sense unless you're evil. Like that's how people's brains work. And with Jody, I think when you really break down the evidence, I mean, I think Chris's theory about how Jody used the audio recordings to manipulate Travis, not only to get him to do what she wanted, but also on the day of the murder, she probably used them to, I'm sorry, Travis, I took these recordings of you. You know, Chris also elaborated that he was trying to get back in good graces with his bishop. So she's blackmailing him saying she'll show the bishop these recordings. He can listen to them. And, you know, who knows what she was trying to do, exert power? I don't know. But then in hindsight, you see, it's like, oh God, she went to go say sorry to Travis, offer the recordings up, and then he forgave her. And it gave her, him on a platter vulnerable to, to do what she did, you know, um, the gas cans. I just think the deliberate calculated nature, the burglary at her grandparents' house where she got the gun, her, her willingness to call him a pedophile. I mean, yeah, that's the opposite of remorse. It's like doubling down. I took your life and then I'm going to ruin any good you've ever did by plastering you with these labels. I mean, it's, it's evil. It's horrible. And I think that's where she beats Casey Anthony, where she didn't kill a baby, but she tried to kill Travis's whole life. Any, any good anyone ever thought of him, she tried to destroy. Well, blackmailing somebody after they're already dead is a new like level of low as well like that's so fucked up because that person's not there to defend themselves especially accusing somebody of being a pedophile there is literally nothing worse to accuse somebody of so it's especially someone who whose religion was important to them it's just blasphemy it's so awful because we're used to this to a degree right defense attorneys generally they find a different angle abuse is common it's like you know you battered woman syndrome you that's common and that's not as egregious as calling someone a rapist and a pedophile. I mean, it's just not the same. Billy? Billy? Okay, should we call it? Okay, time of death, 1638. Beep. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen Gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.